Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're doing a part one of a two-part episode that comes to us courtesy of a little listener mail. Now, this listener mail comes from Matt via email. Uh-huh. So, Again. Yeah, it's getting really popular using that email thing. Oh, I think uh, it's going to be big. Yeah, the only problem is right now we're going through a bit of an email address transition. We will give you our new email address at the end of this episode, but just keep in mind it might take a while for that address to actually take effect. So if you really have to get in touch with us, use Facebook or Twitter for the near future. Yes, but, or Tumblr. Or yeah. Tumblr. Good, good point. So what Matt had to say was, I'd like to hear a show about carbon fiber and the other composite and exotic materials used in aerospace and other modern vehicles. I work with the machines that convert this stuff from spools into airplanes and rockets. So it's a topic that is interesting to me and may be a useful reference episode for future topics. Uh, we agree. Carbon fiber, fascinating stuff. It is. I didn't even realize how fascinating it was until we, in fact, started doing this research. And because it is so fascinating, and since we are splitting this into two episodes, uh, we'll probably have to look at other exotic materials in another one. We'll, we'll make some mention of stuff that is similar to what carbon fiber is, but we're really going to focus on carbon fiber because it's there's a lot there. Oh, yeah. There, there could have probably been way more than two episodes about carbon fiber if we had really gotten into gritty details about about different uses for it and stuff exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. If we had gone into the history of this is the first vehicle to use, if we had done that, this would have been a three-parter easily. But, but fear not, fans. <laughs> We didn't go into that kind of minute detail. We're going to tell you in this episode about the history of developing carbon fiber. In our second part, we'll look more into how it's actually made and the process that uh, that you have to go through in order to get a raw material to turn into carbon fiber. And some of the challenges and benefits thereof. Yes. So first, what the heck is carbon fiber? Uh, it's a material made up of thin strands of crystalline carbon. <laughs> well, there you go. Episode over. Thanks, guys. Yeah, but no, we're, no. we're gonna we're gonna give a little more detail than that. <laughs> so yeah, the the thickness of an individual strand of carbon fiber can be thinner than a human hair by by many factors. Oh actually. yeah, yeah. And um, if you were wondering, yes, it is in fact structurally similar to graphene and carbon nanotubes. The the difference being in the way that the sheets of carbon atoms are are packed and interlocked. Yeah, this is one of those amazing things about carbon. You know, if you put the, the carbon atoms in one formation, you get this very soft material that you would find in pencils. For example. You put it in a different kind of uh, a modular combination and you get diamond. Uh, about as different as two substances can be. Right. So it really shows that just by changing these these uh, orientations, you can really change the, the, the properties of this one material. Well, those little strands, those Strands that are thinner than a human hair can be twisted together to make a yarn-like material and then woven like cloth, which can then be laid in a mold and then coated with resin or, or a plastic so that it will take on a permanent shape. So, uh, right. The coated stuff itself is frequently referred to as carbon fiber, but you may also see it more precisely referred to as carbon fiber reinforced polymer. And that's it rolls off the tongue. Oh, right. Uh, we're just going to call it carbon fiber. Yeah. So uh, forgive us for taking a shortcut. <laughs> but it has a lot of interesting properties, right? So for one thing, it's five times stronger than steel and twice as stiff as steel, but it's lighter than steel. About two thirds lighter by volume. Yep. 
also about eight times stronger than aluminum or aluminium, depending mm-hmm. on where you live, um, which is really handy since aluminum's lower weight by volume is offset by its lower strength, meaning that you have to use a lot more of it to get stuff done. Right. So now you've got this new material that you can use instead of that in lots of different products. And as long as it meets the needs of whatever that product is, you are getting a benefit of something that's stronger and lighter. Yeah. That's pretty amazing stuff. So who does use this? Well, the auto industry uses a lot of carbon fiber, right? Mm-hmm. It's main mainly there to make the components of a car lighter and stronger, which obviously, I mean, that's the properties of the material. So that makes sense to transfer it to the final product. Sure. So why would you want a lighter vehicle? The main reason is because it takes less power to move a lighter vehicle than a heavier vehicle. So that means that you can make a more efficient engine. You're using less energy to move the the actual vehicle. And as long as that vehicle has maintained its strength, so you haven't uh, compromised the safety of the people who are in the vehicle, that's a good thing. Oh, sure. Uh, Carbon fiber usually makes the car actually more resistant to impact than it would be uh, with just regular steel components. Mm -hmm. And in terms of that efficiency... Um, According to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which is this huge lab run by the Department of Energy, you can make a car 30 percent more efficient just by trading out a steel body for a carbon fiber one. So that means that you would end up over time saving lots of money in fuel costs, not to mention the environmental impact of having to consume less fuel to get around. Uh, so the, these are some interesting uh, uses of carbon fiber. It's not the only one. There are a lot of others we'll talk about. For example, uh, we, you know, Matt mentioned aerospace, mm-hmm. a big, big industry that it oh, relies on carbon fiber. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of really mundane kind of things like golf clubs or bicycles, fishing rods, sailboat masts and wind turbines. Yeah. So the thing about carbon fiber is, well, I guess we should go into the history and then I'll tell you what the thing about carbon fiber is. <laughs> That's foreshadowing. So earliest use of carbon fibers. The interesting thing here is that the earliest use I could find predates their applications in any of the industries we just mentioned. And in fact, it wasn't even used to build something like a structure. It wasn't used for its strength or lightness. It was used for an entirely different property that's inherent with carbon fiber, which is its resistance to heat. Thomas Edison. Yeah, a different kind of light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not light as in less heavy, light as in let there be. So <laughs> Thomas Edison, who, uh, of course, we know, beloved Internet darling, one of oh, the yeah, favorites guess, of the Internet. I guess I forgot to boo when when we when you said his name. Right, first. right. I'm sorry. sorry. OK, we'll, we'll we'll put it in there for you, Internet. Boo. Yes. Boo. Uh, yes. Thomas Edison, the elephant electrocutor. <laughs> Uh, who did not personally do that, but still <laughs> used them as filaments for early light bulbs way back in 1879 because of that high tolerance for heat. Now, they can also conduct electricity, but they have a high resistance. If you remember, resistance is what we'd call the 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 uh, kind of opposing element that keeps electrons from flowing through a material smoothly. So if you have a high resistance and you want to try and get elect- uh, electrons from point A to point B, you're not getting as many to point B as we're leaving point A because some of those are converted into, that electron's converting into heat. Mm-hmm. You're losing it through that resistance. I- I'm oversimplifying, but this is basically what's happening. So with light bulbs, that's exactly what you do want. You want to have something that's heating up, and as it heats up, it starts to give off 
photons, light particles. That's what lets us see that light. And of course, in this case, we're talking about light that's in the visible spectrum. Wouldn't be much use to us outside of that. So you end up using this material that has a, a resistance to high temperatures. Because if it didn't, it would just burn up. You know, you would get light, but it would burn up and then your light bulb would be useless. That's just a fire and that's less useful. <laughs> exactly. And uh, while you would try and create a vacuum within the light bulb so you couldn't really burn, burn, uh, you would still end up having the material itself deteriorate really quickly and the light bulb would be broken. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you know when you have an old incandescent light bulb and you hear it go pop. And then you shake it and you can hear the little chingy, 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 chingy Little bits of filament. Yeah. yeah, that's the filament that has given out because it has been worn away so much. So anyway, the carbon fiber tended to be a really good candidate for this filament. And that's what Thomas Edison used. So how did he create carbon fiber? Well, he carbonized something, which means that you're taking one material and you're converting it into these these carbon atoms, these crystalline structures of carbon atoms. Now, specifically, what Thomas Edison was using was cotton and bamboo, different different ones for different types of light bulbs. Mm-hmm. He experimented with a lot of different materials. Sure, but uh, but carbonization is also how we make charcoal. We we carbonize wood. That is exactly right. And so, if you wanted to carbonize wood, if you wanted to make your own charcoal. You would have a few steps. One is that you want to remove all the moisture you can from the organic material, usually through evaporation and heating. So with wood, we call it seasoning. And you may remember that just in our recent podcast about the HMS Victory, they would season wood in order to get as much moisture out of it as possible and made the wood stronger as a result. Uh, in this case, it's not to make the, the wood stronger. It's really just to get rid of all that moisture and then next, you would increase the temperature to induce pyrolysis. What is pyrolysis? It's a basic chemical change brought upon a material through the application of heat. Okay, and, and what's important in this chemical change is that you don't allow any oxygen to come into contact with the material during the process so that it can't burn. Right, because as we remember, the three things you need are uh, you need you need fuel, mm-hmm. you need oxygen, and mm-hmm. you need heat to create fire. So if right. you take any of those three away, you don't have fire. So by taking the oxygen away... You don't have to worry about prematurely burning your material and you can convert it to carbon without it actually catching fire. Uh, very important in any application, specifically for charcoal, because you don't want to burn it before you burn it. Right. Oh, right. I mean, otherwise, barbecues over before it began. Uh, that's any, a sad, sad state. It is. Yeah. I've been in some states that have some pretty sad barbecue with organic material. That means getting all this stuff carbon uh, converted down to carbon while the other stuff like water vapor essentially just kind of evaporates away or kind of vibrates away. Technically, the the atoms that are other than carbon in the material are expelled during the process. Yeah, you can kind of think like carbon. They're allowed to stay at the party. Everyone else is uh, encouraged by the bouncer to leave. Uh huh. So I've been to those parties and a lot of chemical processes go on through pyrolysis. Uh, There's one called isomerization. That's when a molecule gets rearranged into another molecule that has the same constituent atoms, but a different physical structure. You know, like I was mentioning earlier, the, you know, the way you construct carbon atoms together can't depend. That that determines what properties that material has. Right. It can lead to pencil lead or diamonds. Yes. Same thing with any other kind of molecule. You just, well, not any, but different (laughs) molecules. You rearrange the structure of the molecule. You end up with stuff that has very different properties from each other, which Mm -hmm. is, Another fascinating thing, you say all the basic ingredients are the same, but just by the way you arrange the atoms within that molecular structure, you change the actual properties of the overall substance. This is what I think is awesome about science. 
Uh, I don't fully understand it because I'm not a chemist, but I really uh, find it fascinating. Anyway, another thing that you would have going on through pyrolysis is called transfer hydro- hydrogenation. This is where you can tell I'm not a chemist because I can't <laughs> say any of the words. Uh-huh. But this is the addition of hydrogen, as one would imagine, to a molecule from a source other than from hydrogen gas, which is not the easiest thing to get hold of because, again, hydrogen is usually uh, uh captured in some other kind of molecular bond. It's it gets pretty buddy buddy with most other things. Yeah, it's um it's it's just a gregarious kind of atom. As it, is. it likes to hang out with buddies. So what you're left with is carbonized material. So in the case of cotton or bamboo, it's very fibrous in nature. So then you have carbon fibers. Uh, again, not meant to, you know, weave together to make some sort of material that's stronger and lighter than steel, but still had a very good use. So these were the fibers that would conduct electricity. They had the high resistance. You, get, you lose some of that energy as heat, but that's exactly what you want. So you're not not losing it so much as converting it over to heat to create light. Um, it, this is actually called incandescence, where you heat up a material enough so that it starts to give off light. Mm-hmm. Hence the name incandescent light bulbs. Yep. And you've probably seen this in multiple uh Applications, not just incandescent bulbs. I assume most of our our listeners have seen an incandescent bulb, even though they are becoming more and more rare. Uh, but in any material that has heated up beyond its that limit, you start to see it glow. Uh, unless, of course, it's flammable and it's in the p- presence of oxygen, in which case you saw it catch fire. <laughs> uh, so that's exactly why Thomas Edison decided to use this and ended up being a success. It took uh, some experiments to get it. Just right. And even then, um, you know, obviously over time, we made great improvements to the light bulb using different types of material as filament, not just cotton or bamboo carbon fibers. But that was the very first application of carbon fibers in any kind of uh, a manufacturing process. Now, we've got a lot more to talk about in the history of carbon fibers. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. And we're back. So we're still in the late 19th century. This is 1886. Oh, I, and I still can't believe that for such a, a space age, a quote unquote space age fabric, fiber. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's that it goes back this far. To so the 19th century. Yeah. Now, granted, again, used for different purposes, but still, yeah. it's when you hear carbon fiber, that sounds to me like maybe the 1970s was where it got started. But no, you, I, I was completely wrong. So you have the National Carbon Company, which was the first company to make synthetic carbon. And it merged with another company called Union Carbide in 1917. And eventually that company became Union Carbide Corporation in 1957. Now, the the whole purpose of this was to make carbon fibers for things like light bulbs. So we're still in that stage. And meanwhile, in the 1930s, you had engineers who began to experiment with fiber-reinforced composites, or FRPs, which fiber-reinforced composite to FRP, uh, it <laughs> technically stands for fiber-reinforced polymers. Right. But still, it confuses me. Anyway, this is a composite material made out of a pattern of polymers that are reinforced by fibers. The fibers themselves are needed to enhance elasticity and strength of this plastic material, so the first recorded use, according to Oak Ridge National Laboratory, was for a boat hull. Uh, so we, 
you know, you've seen fiberglass boats, I'm sure. I mean, there's a very common thing for small boats in particular, seeing fiberglass boats. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what we're talking about. Uh, So fiberglass is used in a lot of different applications today. It's not the same thing as carbon fiber, but the... The process, well, maybe not the process, but... The overall outcome using... The concept is yeah, similar. Yeah, exactly. Using fibers to reinforce a structure uh, is is very similar to what would end up being used as uh, in the carbon fiber industry. Uh, especially when you have the goal of making something very strong and very lightweight. Exactly. So by the 1940s, the defense industry began to get really interested in FRPs for obvious reasons. So the search was on for new types of fiber that can make stuff stronger and lighter. And a lot of work in material science was dedicated to finding out whether the theoretical strength of certain materials could translate into practical use. So what was happening was that scientists were studying various materials and they would say, all right, based upon the molecular structure of this material, in theory, it has X amount of strength compared to some other material and Y amount of weight in by volume compared to some other material uh, if we were able to to manufacture it properly. And so the difference between theory and reality, often there's a gap there because we just don't have the perfect way to manufacture the stuff that is theoretically possible. Uh, or to manufacture it in a way that is uh, less than completely expensive. Yeah, this, but especially early on, that is a huge challenge because you you often have to invent new ways to create material. So that means that you have to spend a lot of money in research and development right. and, and to build specialty um, uh, equipment to make that stuff. Uh, it's one of the reasons why carbon fiber is not as uh, uh, plentiful as it could be. But we'll talk about that more later. Yeah. So back in the 1950s, there were three really big drivers in the United States that pushed the development of these carbon fibers forward. That's true. So you had the industrial demand for lightweight, strong material, which included industries like aerospace, electronics, sports equipment, that kind of thing. Then there was the work in solid state materials that predicted high potential crystal strengths for certain types of material. This is what I was talking about just a second ago, where people were doing this kind of theoretical work saying, hey, if we just rearrange stuff this way, in theory, it should be even stronger and lighter. Mm -hmm. Let's just find a way of making that happen. The math worked out and the physical process would follow. That's exactly right. And then the third one was that, and this is probably the most important driver during the 1950s, The U.S. economy was going like gangbusters, y'all. Oh, yeah. So with that kind of bounty that was doing so well that there was uh, the ability to afford in uh, investing in research and development and pushing these kind of technologies forward, even if they had an initial high price to get into it, we could afford to do it. So that was a big driver, actually. Uh, So we get to the years of 1958 to 1960. That's when we had companies, primarily the Union Carbide Corporation. Previously mentioned. Yep. They began to discover practical means of using carbon fibers as reinforcement. Those FRPs we were talking about, similar to that. So these carbon fibers didn't come from cotton or bamboo. Oh, right. They were were using materials like rayon or polyacrylonitrile or PAN. Yeah. We're going to say PAN. Because I I kind of enjoy saying polyacrylonitrile. I'll never be able to do it. My... (laughs) My mouth parts don't work that way. <laughs> but no, carbon fibers from these are, are made from precursor fibers, which is made from, you know, the rayon or, or pan. 
So the precursor fiber, we, we use precursor as the term for stuff that you're going to convert into carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. And that alone, like the precursor stuff, had its own manufacturing processes, right? You you had these are synthetic materials that we had to create first that then we would create into carbon fiber. So it's a it's a two step process in, mm-hmm. in a grand overview. Uh, yes, it, m- many smaller steps within. Exactly. Which we will talk about in our second episode. Right. Trust but, us yeah, for now. Yes. <laughs> so but the important thing here to remember is that it, it's not like you would go out to the fields and get some rayon. You have to make the rayon first and then you convert the rayon into carbon fiber. That just cracked me up because the mental image of fields of rayon was was a circle of hell, according to me. Uh, so, fields of rayon, I think, would be a great name for a band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll get on that. But the the important thing here was that using these types of precursor fibers were what allowed them to create the different shapes that carbon fiber could come into. It, it, they were they were really well formed for that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. They, they were already strong and easily manipulatable. Yes. And if you want to learn more about the history of uh, the Union Carbide Corporation and its role in this, I recommend going to acs.org. It has a lot on the history of carbon fiber development. goes into a, a huge amount of detail. And again, if we were to go into as much detail as some of these sources do, yeah, we'd be doing like a five-part series, and I think some of you guys might get a little antsy. But, uh, uh, yeah, I I did want to mention in 1963 that there was a uh, a way to make carbon fibers from petroleum pitch debuted, um, and those are those are semi-solid polymers, kind of kind of like tar. Yeah, yeah, and that was that's different, obviously, because you can actually find tar in nature. This was not something that you would have to first create the polymer. And then do the carbonization on it. You could get the actual stuff and then separate out what you needed and then do the carbonization on that. Um, and they experimented with lots of other materials to try and manufacture carbon fibers that included uh, polyesters, polyvinyl alcohol and phenolic resins. Yep. But it turned out that pan, rayon and pitch, the first three they really concentrate on, were the most useful for creating high strength material. So mm-hmm. so it turned out their their initial um, impulse was exactly what made the most sense. It also made the most sense from a dollar standpoint, like the, the you know, having the manufacturing industries that are already established for at least rayon and pan mm-hmm. meant that it was less expensive than to create something out of whole cloth. And petroleum pitch could be a byproduct of the petroleum industry. So that's kind of a that's kind of a gimme. Right. So getting back to those drivers we were talking about, the two industries that drove the carbon fiber development the most in those early years were the aerospace industry and the defense industry. So you had some outside crises like the uh, oil crisis that affected the pace of development. And now we've got a lot of different industries that have a vested interest in creating lightweight, resilient materials for products. And carbon fiber has received a lot of attention as a result. You can imagine aerospace being the big one because we all know the heavier stuff is, the more expensive it is to try and get it out into space. The more fuel you need to get it to escape Earth's gravity so we can get it into orbit. So, And it, especially these days, every dollar counts. So, And obviously you want it to be really strong material because of... Preferably. The, yeah, because <laughs> space, as we have established numerous times, is trying to kill you. So you want to make sure that you have a nice strong barrier between you and space and and the deadly, deadly space. So 
uh, yeah, obviously a, a big important driver. And of course, we're, we're getting right into that era too, where the United States and the Soviet Union both were racing against each other to try and get people into orbit and to get people to and from the moon. So it was, there were a lot of incentives to develop this kind of material. Now, there's some problems with carbon fiber that have nothing really to do with the properties of the material itself. And one of the big problems is that there are only a few companies that actually produce carbon fiber material. So the price of carbon fiber is still relatively high, which limits its use in consumer goods. Uh, or just drives the prices of those goods way up as a result. So, yeah, only the the more affluent can afford those type of those type of products that incorporate carbon fiber. Yeah. The, the last time I checked, I think cars that incorporate a lot of carbon fiber in their bodies are still running around the hundred thousand dollar starting price range. Yeah. I mean, they tend to be really high performance vehicles anyway, sure. because sure. if you're going to go with that, you might as well oh, go yeah, all no, the way. It's, it's not just a civic engine tossed into right, a exactly. carbon fiber body. But, but still, <laughs> your, your point is, is very, very valid. It's uh, according to Oak Ridge, there are three Japanese companies that make carbon fiber, four that are in the United States and European uh, co- uh, countries, and then one Taiwanese company, and that's it, that produce carbon fiber, at least on the industrial scale. Uh-huh. So when you have a limited supply, you know, each of those each of those companies has a limited amount that they can produce just based upon their their facilities. Right. right. So if you need more than what can be made, you're kind of stuck. You know, anyone who wants to make anything using carbon fiber is kind of limited in where they can get that raw material. Oh, sure. And part of the reason that so few companies produce it is that there are huge challenges in in actually producing the stuff. Yeah. So one of them is that you first have to get the precursor fibers. That's that's step one, right? You have to have you have to the, create these precursors in order to to, to turn them into carbon fiber. So yeah. either you either you're buying it from some other company that manufactures it. Or you're making your own. But if you make your own, that means you need two sets of manufacturing plants, usually. You need one that's dedicated just to creating the precursors and one that's dedicated to carbonization. Now, some companies, like the Japanese ones, have been co-locating facilities so that you have no real distance between the precursor facility and the carbonization facility. Saving at least a little bit of money. Yeah, but, you know, not everyone has that luxury of being able to build, you know, twice the facilities to make one product. That also is another reason why the why we have the expense. It's not just that uh, there's so relatively little of it to go around, but also that it it does take this very involved process to actually make the stuff. So um, other companies have actually bought up old textile plants and used them to produce the precursor fibers. Huh. That is fascinating. So, yeah, I'm wondering. Uh, actually, my my. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side worked in such a textile plant, which I believe is being converted over into something like that. So that's kind of interesting. Huh. I, I, one of my grandparents was also in textiles. So now, I, now I'm now i curious. I need to look up the plant in Pennsylvania that he worked in. Mm. The one in Georgia that, that my grandfather worked in once had its roof ripped off by a tornado. But that's a different podcast entirely. Yeah. So another, we already did a podcast on tornadoes. Yeah, I guess I'll have to wait till we till it comes back around again. Ah, uh, that was just for you, Internet. So another strategy, uh, as far as the manufacturing and sale of carbon fiber goes, is to include post-materials processing with the production facility, which means that instead of just creating raw carbon fiber, which you would, you can imagine, like, think of an enormous spool of thread. 
I mean, it's just the huge spools that have the, this thread that, again, is thinner than a human hair wound. Or in some cases, they're all kind of um, braided together to make to make a rope. That yarn. Yeah. yeah, like yarn or rope. Mm-hmm. You could just buy that stuff, just the raw material there once it's been produced. But then that means that whatever you are making, you have to have the facility to be able to take that raw material and shape it or, or otherwise you know, post-process yeah, yeah. it. Weave it and then coat it in whatever resin you want. Yeah. So some of these companies are creating that post-production facility where they can do some of the treatment ahead of time so that uh, it's a lot easier for other companies to con- convert this into products. So that way you remove a, a necessary step that the other company has to do and make it a more attractive product. So that might include weaving the, the fibers together, braiding them or treating them with those resins for molding so that, you know, you're not necessarily molding the stuff already. You're just pre-treating it so that it can be molded faster once it gets to whatever company is buying the raw material. That's the other reason why this gets expensive, right? Because not only do you have a two-step, two-big-step process in just producing the carbon fiber itself – then you have the whole manufacturing process of turning the carbon fiber into a useful product. So every time we add another process, you're adding to the cost. Oh, sure. So uh, anyway, it's a pretty cool idea to try and pair all this together to help make carbon fiber a more attractive option. Because obviously, the, the demand is there. It's mm-hmm. the supply that we're trying to uh, to perfect. Uh, right. So... This is about where we are going to end for today's episode. But uh, when we come back next time, we're going to go into detail about that manufacturing process, why it's so expensive, and uh, what what's being done in the industry to try to make it less expensive. Yeah, it's a really cool process. And I'm glad that we decided to make this two episodes because uh, I really want to be able to explain and, and go into exactly what's going on behind the scenes Pretty neat stuff. So first of all, Matt, thank you so much for your suggestion. Yes. We'll, we'll be thanking you again in our next episode. So, you know, you can you can coast along for two episodes of thanks. <laughs> uh, and everybody else who wants to be like Matt and send in suggestions, uh, do so on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our handle is techstuffhsw. Our email address will be techstuff at howstuffworks.com. But uh, just can't guarantee that it's working right now. Yeah, send as- a test email. <laughs> Let us know. Just say, hey, Tech Stuff, I love you and I've never written before or something along those lines. But make it nice. That would that would be preferable. Yeah, because uh, I'm going on vacation, y'all. So it's going to be Lauren who gets all the emails. Yeah, that would be really preferable, people. Please do that, please. <laughs> That'll just mean that when I get back, I'll have 500 unread emails from listeners. Hey, you know what? I'd like to have that problem. Yes. So anyway, uh, that wraps up this episode. We'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.